0: We're going to be in John chapter number 8. John chapter number 8 is where we'll be today. And uh, we're continuing our series refocus. We're wanting to see a a more clear view of who Jesus is through the account of the Gospels. And last week what we were looking at was in chapter 7 of John. um, Jesus was getting ready to go to Jerusalem for the Feast of the Tabernacles. And his brothers were... Uh, were very skeptical of him. His brothers did not believe that he was the Son of God. They had grown up around him, and uh, there was jealousy. There was all these different things going on. And so they came to Jesus, and they said, Here is your opportunity. If you really are who you say you are, go down to Jerusalem. Proclaim yourself to be the Son of God. Start your revolution. Start your kingdom. Make things happen. And we saw in that situation that what was going on in their ignorance and their impatience, they started making demands of how Christ was supposed to work. And we can relate to that because oftentimes we are ignorant, we are impatient, and we want God to do things right now. We want God to do things our way. We want him to make things clear, both in his will, what he's doing, his works, the things that's going on. We want him to make it so clear that it's unquestionable that we can understand it. And then we want him to make us believe. We want him to prove himself to us. And then what we saw through this uh, situation in John chapter number seven is that God has a reason for his timing. Things don't always happen in the time frame that we like. We want it, like I said, instant. We want it to happen now. But sometimes God says, wait. Sometimes God says, not yet, because he has something different in the works. He has something better in the making. He knows things that we don't know. He knows situations. He knows ingredients, if you will, that we are unaware of. And because of that, he works things out according to his perfect timing. He doesn't do things. Hit. Excuse me. He doesn't do things our way, but instead he does things his way because his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts, and he knows what's best. And honestly, if we could see things the way that God sees things, we would choose to do things the way that God does things. But usually we don't understand. Usually we don't see all the things that is incorporated into His plan. So we get impatient. We say, "Do it our way. Do it right now." And then, like I said, we want it to be made clear. We want him to show himself miraculously. We want things to be fantastic and phenomenal so that it makes it so clear that there's no doubt. When we're talking about his will for our lives, we want him to just spell out a road map. We want him to show us plainly and give us each step along the way. But if God makes all things clear and he shows everything ahead of time, there is no room for faith. The Bible says that without faith, it is impossible to please Him. It is faith that He requires of us. And He wants us to trust Him so that we walk with Him and allow Him to do the work, allow Him to do the leading. Because if He shows us ahead of time, we'll try to do it ourselves. We'll try to leave Him in the dust and go ahead of Him. And we do that enough the way it is. And then the last thing, as I said, we want Him to prove Himself. We want Him to convince us. We say, if you'll prove yourself first, then we will follow. But we have enough proof in his word, and he says, if you will follow me, then I'll prove myself. He says, try me. He says, put me to the test, start following me, and see if I don't lead you in the right way. See if my way is not good, right? And so today what we're going to see is as he continues in this week of the Feast of the Tabernacles, we talked about last week what this feast was, what was going on. This was about six months before the crucifixion. And so he comes down uh, secretly into Jerusalem. And as he's in Jerusalem, uh, he comes openly into the temple. And there is uh, tens or hundreds of thousands of Jews gathered in Jerusalem. There is huge crowds and huge huge multitudes. And as he begins teaching in the temple and people begin talking about him, people begin debating about who he is, what he's about, what's going on. Uh, There is all of this murmuring uh, between the crowds, but then as the crowds are starting to murmur, as they're starting to gather, as Jesus is beginning to teach, as he's beginning to have an impact, then the religious leaders are getting nervous. They're not sure what to think of Jesus, but they know that they believe he is a threat, that he is a problem for them, and so they're trying to figure out how to discredit him or how to get rid of him. He has confronted them about their desire to kill him, and they, uh, they uh, accused him of being possessed of a devil whenever he said, you're trying to kill me. Uh, he has talked about how all the things that he has gotten is from the Father, from God, and how he is speaking on behalf of God, and this is offensive to them. And so as they are growing offended, they are trying to find a way, as I said, to to get rid of him, to kill him, to silence him, because they're seeing their power and their hold over the people eroding. And whenever all the other tactics that they use prove to be worthless, they formulate a plan. And in this plan, they're going to trick him, or they're going to catch him, or they're going to get him in a trap, or so they think, but they underestimate the Son of God. And I think that's a mistake that we often make as well. We underestimate God. And so let's read John chapter number one, or excuse me, John chapter number eight, verse number one. It says, Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again unto the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought unto him a woman taking in, taken in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last, and Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself, he saw no excuse me, he saw none but the woman. He said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord, and Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee go and sin no more. Let's go, Lord, and pray. Lord, we come to you one more time. Lord, just thank you for your blessings. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this, uh, this account that we have in scripture of your dealing with uh, the sinful woman and with the religious crowd and all of these different things and the way that you were able to navigate this situation and the wisdom that it imparts to us. Through it, Lord, we just pray, Lord, asking you that you would guide and direct my speech. Help me to say the things that are uh, truthful and accurate and helpful, Lord. And we just pray, Lord, asking you that you'd be with each person here today. We thank you, Lord, for their desire to be here, their effort in coming out. And Lord, we're thankful for our visitors that's come. And I just pray that you'd bless them, that you'd help them, that you'd encourage them, that your Holy Spirit would do a work in their hearts and lives. And we just ask you, Lord, today that you would increase our faith, increase our walk with you, and help us, Lord, as we seek to serve and to live for you. We thank you so much for all that you do and all you're going to do. And all these things I pray in Jesus' name, and amen. So as we look at this passage, the we find that Jesus was sitting in the temple. He had been on the temple grounds. This wouldn't have been in the middle of the temple proper, okay? Uh, I think a lot of times, if you're like me, you imagine whatever it says that Jesus taught in the temple, you're thinking of him being in the actual building of the temple, right? But on the grounds of the temple, there was the walls around it. There would have been the court of the Gentiles. There would have been the court of the women in different places around the temple. And Jesus would have gathered more than likely in one of those courts. People would have came to where he was at and as I said, this was during a time of the feast. This was a time when Jerusalem was overflowing with people. So there would have been a large crowd that was coming in. And so as Jesus was sitting down, quietly teaching these people and instructing them from the word of God uh, and expounding on the truth of scripture, we find that there's a commotion that starts taking place. And the scribes and the Pharisees are dragging a woman in And they bring this woman in before Jesus, before all this crowd, throw her down in the middle of the gazing eyes of all these people. It says that she was caught in adultery in the very act. So most likely she had grabbed a bed sheet or a blanket. She was trying to keep herself covered up. Her eyes were cast down to the ground. She was ashamed and all eyes was on her. All eyes was on this situation. And while she was there, these religious leaders... Use her as a pawn in their game, if you will. Uh, These religious leaders come to Jesus, and they recite the charge against her. She is guilty of adultery. The law prescribes that such should be stoned, Jesus. What do you have to say about that? And if we step back for just a minute and look and see what their game was, it says that they said this, tempting him that they might have to accuse him of. In their minds, there was only two answers that Jesus could give. If he said to them, well, the law says she should be stoned, let's kill her. Well, the the Pharisees, the scribes, had long since left off uh, stoning people for adultery. They had eased up. They had uh, decided to go with mercy, Okay. And if Jesus would have kept with the law and said, kill her, then Jesus would seem harsh. He would seem uh, unmerciful. It would go against his character. It would go against the message that he had been proclaiming. And people would then uh, start walking away from Jesus. They would say, I don't like that he is so staunch and so strict toward the law. And so they would have been uh, leaving and going away from him. Not only that, but if he said, kill her, Then the Romans were in charge at the time, and only the Romans were able to execute someone. And so if Jesus was uh, advocating for the Jews inflicting capital punishment on someone, that would mean that he was speaking against the Romans, and then they could accuse him to the Romans and possibly get him uh, punished by Rome. And so this was their game. But if, on the other hand, he says, let her go, overlook this, have mercy on her, They would say, what? You are discrediting the law? You are advocating that we just ignore the law of Moses, the law that God has given? Are you greater than the law? Are you greater than God? That's what they would have said. And so in their mind, they had Jesus in a corner. They said, if he says this, we've got him. If he says this, we've got him. There's one of two options. They didn't count that Jesus had a third option. And so what ended up happening is as they were going through all of this, Jesus stoops down, takes his finger, and begins to write on the dirt. We have no idea what he wrote. There's been many people who have speculated. There's a lot of pastors that take great joy in speculating about what he wrote, but we don't know. And so anyway, he writes on the ground, and as he's going about, he doesn't say anything, and they keep on and keep on compelling him to respond because they think they've got him. And whenever he finally responds, he looks up at them and says, let the one who is without sin cast the first stone at her. And apparently whatever was written, whatever was going on here, brings conviction upon the heart of all of them. They drop their stones. They leave the place. And it's just Jesus and the woman in front of the crowds. They're all watching to see what Jesus does. He looks up at the woman and he says, where are your accusers? Do you not have anyone to condemn you? She says, no one, my Lord. And he says, neither do I condemn thee, go and sin no more. It's a beautiful story. It's a beautiful picture of God dealing with a sinful person. It is an illustration for us today as human beings, as men and women on this earth today, of God's attitude toward us, his dealings with us, and how things still work to this day. And so that's what we want to look at today as we see his dealing with this woman caught in adultery I just want to walk through kind of step by step of what we can learn from it. The first thing that we find in this story is the condemnation of the law. The condemnation of the law. Whenever they bring the woman, throw her down, the first thing that they say is the law demands her death. The law demands her death. And that's not something that's pleasant to us, is it? The law was given to the Jews at Sinai. If we go back and just walk through the history just a little bit, the Jews were delivered from Egypt. They had spent over four hundred years as slaves in exile, right? And so they had spent that time there. And whenever the time came, God rose up Moses, raised up Moses, and Moses went before Pharaoh. Said, love my people." You remember the story? And so the the Jews were led out of Egypt by Moses. They went through the Red Sea. They came into the wilderness and God led them to Mount Sinai. And Moses went up to the top of Mount Sinai with the two tables of stone. God gave them the Ten Commandments, gave them the law, right? And he was giving them the law for a reason, for a purpose. It was to reveal to these people who had been alienated, who had been separated from him for generations, to show them who he was, to show them what was right, what was wrong, to show them how he was dealing with them and what he was going to do. If we look into the law, we can separate the law into three parts. Now, this isn't necessarily something that is spelled out in the Bible, but it's something that we can break it down and help us to understand we have the moral law. Those are the thou shalts and thou shalt nots. We're familiar with that. We have the Ten Commandments, right? Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not covet. Honor thy father and thy mother, remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. Thou shalt have we remember those, right? Yeah. And whichever ones I've missed. Okay? <laughs> And so those are the thou shalt thou shalt not. Those are the moral law. Those are the things that is always right and always wrong in every generation, in every tribe, every tongue, every culture, everywhere around this world. This is the law that God has written on the fleshly tables of our hearts, that every man knows that there is right and wrong within this creation that God has made. He has established on our hearts his moral laws. And it doesn't matter what tribe or tongue you go to, to this day, there is that moral law that is written upon their hearts. And no matter who you go to, they still don't keep it. They still break it. And it still condemns them. Okay? They still find themselves guilty. And every religion that you find around this world is an attempt to try to somehow cover up or to salve the conscience of men who know that they are guilty and stand condemned by the law. That is what religion is. It is some way to ease our conscience, to help us whenever we know that the law condemns us. Whether we've ever heard the Ten Commandments, whether we've ever read a Bible, we know that we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God, and man is trying to seek and trying to find a way to make restitution through religious deeds, through ceremonies, through uh, penance, through whatever, through their good works. They are trying to make restitution to the God that they have offended by breaking his law and we stand condemned by the law. And so I said we have the moral law. We also had the civil law that was given. Remember, this was a, uh, a theocracy. God was ruling over the people. God was their king. And so he gave the Jews a government. It told about restitution. Whenever someone steals, when someone kills, then this is how they make restitution. This is the price that they should pay. It prescribed punishments Were the things that they did. It gave the cities of refuge that the manslayer could flee to. It had all these different things to regulate a holy people, a separated people, God's people. Okay? And then the third part of it was the ceremonial law. The ceremonial law. That was the The orders for the priesthood, for the tabernacle and the temple, that was laying out the feast. that was laying out the festivals, that was laying out the sacrifices and the offerings, the bloodshed, all of these different things was in the ceremonial law. And if we would look at each one of those, uh, the moral law says what's right and wrong, the civil law says how to be right with fellow man, and the ceremonial law says how to be right with God. Does that make sense to everybody? And so that's just kind of a, a little review of what the law was. But whenever the, the Jews came before Jesus here, threw this woman down and said, such should be stone. She has broken our moral law. She has broken the civil law. She has broken the ceremonial law. She is unclean. She is fully and holy and completely condemned before God and man. And so what do you have to say about this? If we were to be honest with ourselves, we know that each and every one of us sin and fall short of the glory of God. We know that each and every one of us, we have lied, we have coveted, we have uh, all these different things. Most of us has probably stolen and I don't want to get any deeper than that. It gets embarrassing, right? And so we realize that we sin. We realize that we mess up. And we realize that if God, a holy and just and righteous God, looks down at us as sinful men, that there is sin that separates us between us and God. We find all the way back in the garden with Adam and Eve, whenever they disobeyed God, they took the fruit when God said not to, that from that time there was guilt that entered in. There was shame that entered in. There was separation that entered in. At that moment, they stood condemned by the law before it was ever written on Sinai. Okay? And so the law brings condemnation. And as we look at the law, though, it has a higher purpose, though. The law's purpose isn't just to condemn, but Galatians tells us that the law is our schoolmaster. Ever heard that term? The law is our schoolmaster. Now, a schoolmaster isn't a schoolteacher. Isn't that what we often associate it with? A schoolmaster was a servant or a slave whose responsibility was to bring his master's children to and from school to make sure that they did their studies, they did their homework, that they got to where they are supposed to be. And so whenever it says that the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, it wasn't the law's responsibility to teach us. It wasn't the law's responsibility to do any of these other things. Its responsibility was to get us to Jesus. Its responsibility was to show us that we needed Christ. That was its purpose. And so the Jews attempted to use the law as a way to justify themselves, as a way to cleanse themselves, as a way to make themselves feel good. But what the law was meant to do was to show them that they had sinned and come short of the glory of God and they needed a savior. That's what the, or the ceremonial law uh, taught them whenever there were rams and lambs and bullocks and there was a shedding of blood that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. And so as they were going and they were offering up offerings, as they were offering up sacrifices, they were saying, I have sinned, there's a price that needs to be paid, and God for a time is allowing me to offer up this animal, but one day he is going to offer up a sacrifice to take away my sins. One day there will be the seed of the woman that bruises the head of the serpent. One day the, the son of David is going to come about, and he is going to pay the price for me. And that's what it was all pointing to. It was all showing that God had to intervene on our, be- or on our behalf because we were separated, because we were condemned. Okay? And so the law condemns us, and there is no way we can get away from it. That makes us uncomfortable, doesn't it? And so even though we can't get away from it, we try, don't we? And so that actually uh, gives us a good background. It gives us a good reason for this story that's before us today. Why was it the religious leaders were coming and thrusting this woman down before them? Why was it they had this attitude that they had? Now, we know that they were trying to catch Jesus up. They were trying to trap Jesus, right? But how is it that they could look at this woman? We said that all men are condemned. All men are sinners, right? And so how is it that they can look at this woman and treat her in such a way? Well, see... Not only is there condemnation of the law, there's comparison among men. We try to justify ourselves. We compare ourselves amongst each other. And we are guilty of trying to make it as if it's not as bad as what it really is, because at least I haven't done that. We look at these religious leaders at this time. What are they trying to do? They're lying. They're proud. They're arrogant. They're deceitful. They are trying to kill Jesus. They are rejecting God. Aren't those pretty severe sins? They are guilty. They are sinful. But they're not adulterers, or at least they haven't got caught. And so what they're doing here is they are bringing out this woman. She was caught in adultery in the very act. And she they are looking down on her in condemnation. And they are saying, she deserves to die. And look how religious, look how good, look how pure we are because we're not like her. Remember the story of the the Pharisee that went into the temple to pray and he saw the publican. And he says, thank you, God, that I'm not like him. I do all these wonderful works and I'm not like this guy, even though he was proud and arrogant and arrogant idolatrous, right? Mm -hmm. And so men are good at magnifying the sins of others while minimizing their own. I might do this, but at least I don't do that. And we start magnifying other people's sins. We minimize our own sins. And we may very well do real well at doing good. If you follow that sentence, I don't know may do very well at being good. We might be a good moral person. You might, uh, by all means, have the marks from the outside. You do all the right things. You say the right things. But you are glad, I guarantee that no one can read your mind and your heart. Wouldn't that be scary? You know, people talk about, like, superpowers, superhero movies come out, and these different superhero abilities. I think the scariest thing in the world is if someone could read minds. And I'll tell you, I would not want that ability because I know how messed up my mind is. And I assume yours is at least close. And I don't want to know what you're thinking because my thoughts are bad enough to keep up with. Okay. And this is why Jesus is talking about it. If a man looks at a woman to lust after her, he's committed adultery in his heart already. Uh, We tend to focus on the outward appearances, on the things that's visible and the things that we can see, but what we don't realize is that man is even more corrupt on the inside and all those things that we're able to keep pushed down and keep uh, held back and keep restrained are still just as wicked. We just haven't let it out yet. The Bible tells us that the heart of man is desperately wicked, right? It's deceitful above all and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And if we are honest with ourselves, our heart is desperately wicked. We have all sorts of sinful thoughts. Have you ever just been going through your day and then just all of a sudden a thought hit your mind and you're like, where did that come from? I am messed up. Or is that just me? Okay, glad glad some people would say that because I was beginning to get nervous for a second. And so we go through life and we realize this, but if we can try to justify because I'm not that guy or that guy, I don't do this. And isn't this what religion has done down through the ages? Isn't this what we always do? We pick out certain uh, social ills. We pick out certain sins. We mark them as being bad. And no matter what happens, at least we're not those guys. We point out the the drunkards and the drug addicts and the homosexuals and the adulterers and the fornicators and all these different ones. And we think we are spiritual. We think that we're okay because we're not like them. When at the same time, we're like these scribes and these Pharisees. We are self-righteous. We are hypocrites. We are judgmental. We are all these different things in our lives because we are comparing and trying to justify ourselves. And even though we try to justify ourselves by others, others is not the standard by which we're going to be judged. We're going to be judged by the word of God. And so I might be able to say, well, at least I haven't done what Peter's done. But whenever I stand before God, he's not going to say, okay, did you do better than Peter? He's going to hold up the wonderful word of his law. And I'm going to fall short if I'm not trusting in Jesus Christ as my Savior. And so we try to compare ourselves. But now as we continue following through this story, we find that, <clears throat> excuse me, there's the condemnation of the law, there's a comparison of man, there's the conviction of the word. The conviction of the word because whenever we see Jesus stoop down, he begins to write on the dirt, right? I wonder if in his mind he went back to that day of creation where he knelt down and he took of the earth and he formed a man and he breathed into his nostrils. He became a living soul. I wonder if in his mind he went back to that act. Just kind of a side note as I'm thinking about that, Jesus working on the ground, whenever he did that before, he was creating mankind, but now as he's writing on the ground, we, like I said, we don't know what in the world he wrote. He could have been writing dates and times that these men who were holding the stones had committed sins. Maybe the very times that they committed adultery. Maybe he was writing down the Ten Commandments. Maybe he was writing a list of offenses. We have no idea what he was writing. But what we do know that he was writing, it was the Word of God because he was God in flesh. And so the words of God was being written on the dirt before the eyes of all of those men who, And then whenever they continued to press him, the spoken word of God went forth and he said, he who is without sin cast the first stone and conviction set in, in the hearts of every one of those men. They dropped their stones and they ran away in guilt and shame and sorrow because they realized they were sinners, just like the woman that they wanted to destroy. Conviction came in. That is the power of the Word of God. The Bible says that it is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. The Bible tells us that it is the sword of the Spirit. That means it is the weapon that the Holy Spirit uses in your life to defend you from the snares and the temptations of the devil. Whenever the accuser of the brethren comes at you, it is His Word that the Holy Spirit uses to defend you. It is the weapon that the Holy Spirit uses. I know a lot of people try to compare this and say, this is my sword. No, this is the Spirit's sword. And you need to make sure that you are in His Word, equipping the Spirit with the weapon that He needs in your life. Okay? And so the, the Word of God is powerful. It brings conviction. It brings cleansing on the heart of mankind. And that is one reason why it is so opposed and it is so hated. Why is it that the world is trying to uh, trying to attack God's Word so much? Why is it that they're trying to discredit it so badly? Why has there been so much opposition to the Word of God? It is banned in multiple countries. It is kept out of public spaces. It is ruled as being offensive. Down throughout the years, many people have given their lives for the Word of God. Down throughout the years, uh, the just for instance, the Catholic Church tried its best to keep the Word of God in the Latin language because no one spoke it. And whenever people tried translating it to the common tongues, they were imprisoned, they were beaten, they were killed because they tried to silence the word of God. Satan wanted to do everything he could to keep the word of God away from men because the word of God is powerful. It brings conviction. It brings change. It brings transformation. And so whenever we are exposed to the word of God, we may be Condemned. We may be trying to compare ourselves, but whenever we come to the word of God, it deals with our heart. It shows that we are a sinner. It shows that we need God. That's its purpose. That's what it does. It is a wonderful, wonderful gift that God has given us in his word because if we just stood condemned, if we just stood trying to justify ourselves by other people, there is no hope. But whenever it tells us, you have sinned, you have came short, But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It brings conviction, and that conviction brings us to Christ, and it brings us to a place where we can get that straightened out, where we can get that dealt with. And so that brings us to the fourth thing that we see in this passage. And we see in this, excuse me, we see in this the compassion of Christ the compassion of Christ. All this would be bad news if we were just convicted and condemned and comparing. But Jesus doesn't leave us there. It brings us hope here because as all of these men fled, as all of these men went away, this woman was left standing in front of Jesus and he says, where are your accusers at? And she says, they're going. And he says, neither do I condemn thee. That's huge, because Jesus is the only one that was able. He was the only one that was just, the only one that was righteous. He is the only one worthy of judging mankind and condemning them. And he says, neither do I condemn thee. Whatever he said to these men that were holding the rocks, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Jesus was the only one that was worthy to pick up a stone and cast that stone. He was the only one without sin. And he didn't pick up the stone. He said, neither do I condemn thee. That's huge. I don't believe it was at this time that this woman was saved. This was where she first got in touch with God. This is where she first uh, was introduced to him. Okay? But what God is doing, what Jesus is doing in this place, is he is showing his compassion. He is saying that I am not going to cause you to die for your sin until I have the opportunity to do so. Jesus is getting ready within six months of this time. He's getting ready to go to the cross. He's getting ready to take upon him the sin and the shame and the suffering of mankind. He's getting ready to lay down his life. He's getting ready to take it up again and ascend up into heaven to make intercession on behalf of us. And he says, I am not going to demand your payment because I'm getting ready to pay your price. He has compassion on her. He is extending mercy. He is giving an opportunity for her to trust him and for her to be saved. And he has done that to each and every one of us. He has extended mercy. He's extended grace. He's given an opportunity. If you look back throughout creation, if I was God, and that's a dangerous statement, if I was God, I would never have let people transgress against me the way mankind has transgressed <laughs> against God. If I was God, I wouldn't have had Noah in the ark. I'd wiped them all out before then. But God had compassion. God had mercy. If I was God, I wouldn't have allowed them to beat me and rip my uh, my beard out and beat my back and drive nails into my hand and drive a spear in my side. I wouldn't have allowed any of them to do that. I would have called all the legions of angels from heaven, and I would have caused them to slay every, mankind, every one of mankind and deliver me from that place if I was God but I'm not loving and compassionate and merciful like he is. But Jesus went through all of that. It says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the suffering and the shame. What was the joy? The joy was extending compassion and mercy and forgiveness to whosoever will. Was forgiving mankind, establishing a relationship, redeeming them unto himself. That was the joy that was set before him. And he endured all of those things. He was compassionate. And even to the point that those men who inflicted that suffering and that pain on him, he looked on them and he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And we might condemn those soldiers that did that. We might condemn Pilate for being spineless and wishy-washy. We might condemn Peter for denying him. But here's the thing. God was using all of those things to bring about salvation for each and every one of us. And we are just as sinful and just as deserving of suffering as any of the rest of those. We have sinned against God. We have mocked and ridiculed him by our actions and our work. And he still looks on us with love and says they don't realize what they're doing. Go ahead and forgive them. I love them. On top of that, you have the thief that was on the cross. It says that he was railing against Jesus. He was mocking him. He says, if you be the Christ, then save yourself and save us. And they were making fun of Jesus, him and the other thief on the other side. But it came a point in time where he realized this isn't just a man. This isn't just some sinner. This isn't just some thief or some uh, rebel or something. This is the Son of God. And he looks at Jesus. After just prior to this, he mocked him. He said, when you enter your kingdom, remember me. He acknowledged that this wasn't the end, that Jesus was going onward. He wasn't dying. He wasn't going to go in the ground and be done with, that Jesus was going on to obtain a kingdom, that he was the son of God, that he had power to do something, and he had power to deliver this man. And he says, when you enter your kingdom, remember me. And Jesus looks at him, and instead of saying, after all you said, after all you did, you want me to help you? That's what we would have said, right? He has compassion on him, and he says, this day... Will you be with me in paradise? That is the compassion of Christ. And it doesn't matter what we have done. It doesn't matter what we have said. It doesn't matter how many times we've rejected him, how many times we've sinned against him, how many times we've abused his name and mocked and ridiculed him. It doesn't matter what we have done, how good we've been or how bad we have been. He still looks upon us with love. He still has compassion on us. The Bible says that God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Bible says that that he has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He doesn't want to see any man die and go to hell. He wants to have compassion on all men. But here's the thing, he doesn't force anyone. He extends that compassion. He extends that mercy. And he says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He says, I am opening up the doorway. He told the people, I am the door. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. But any that comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. This is what he said. I am having compassion. If you will trust in my death, burial, and resurrection to pay the price for your sins, to open up the way to heaven, then I will bid you come in and you can sup with me and I with you. He has compassion on us. And what a change that is from the condemnation and the comparison that we want to fall into. The world is trying to find a way to overcome the guilt and overcome the shame. They think if they give enough money, if they do enough good deeds, if they uh, go through enough religious ceremonies, if they do whatever works it is that their religion entails, that that is going to make them okay with God. And Jesus says, it is by my grace that you are saved. It is not by your works, It is only by trusting in me that you can be saved. Man puts out so much effort, but it is by his compassion that we receive salvation. And that's the only way. And if there's anyone in here today that has never put their faith and trust in Jesus, if you're in here today and you're trusting in anything else, the law condemns us. You're never going to be able to keep the law. You're never going to be able to do it all. And at the end of the day, you are guilty and you are Helpless before God, just like this woman before them. She had nothing that she could claim. But upon hearing the word of God, it brings conviction on your heart, and it shows you that you need Jesus. He is the only way to salvation. He is the only way to heaven. And he has said, anyone who will look to him, anyone who will trust in him for the forgiveness of their sins, will have eternal life. That's what he has offered. And so if you have never trusted him as your Savior, today can be the day. If you will turn away from your religion, turn away from whatever you're trusting in, and turn to Christ as your only Savior, as your only hope, he will forgive your sins, he will save your soul, he will change your eternal address and give you a home in heaven with him. But if you're here today and you've already done that, this last point is for you. As we look at this passage here, not only does he say, neither do I condemn thee, he says, go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. A lot of people want to try to bring this out as if Jesus has endorsed her sin, as if he's kind of just uh, winked at it, as if he's just overlooked it, and we can live however we want to live. But here's the thing. We are compelled by his love. We're compelled by his love. Do you think that this woman left in the same condition she came in? There's no way that she could have came face to face with Jesus There is no way that she could be the recipient of his mercy and of his compassion. For him to look on her face and say, neither do I condemn thee. There is no way that she can look on the face of God and his love for her and leave the same way. I think after this woman's interaction with him, that it had an effect on her. Whenever he says, neither do I condemn thee, I bet she had an interest in finding out more about him. I bet she became a disciple of his. She was following around. She was asking about him, I'm sure. It's quite possible that she became one of his disciples. It's quite possible that she was there when he was crucified. Maybe she was at the tomb. Uh, more than likely, she was in one of the 120 in the upper room after this because she said, this Jesus who loved me this much, who was so compassionate and so loving that I would stand on my behalf, I want to know more about him. I want to live in such a way that's going to please him. And whenever we come to, to this thing of Christianity, we get it all backward. We get it messed up. We think that somehow by our works, by uh, doing the right things, by trying to go through the motions and trying to be religious and trying to keep the law and trying to all these different things, that somehow that is causing God to uh, to show his favor on us. We think that somehow that is buying our way into heaven. That's buying his approval of us. That somehow we are trying to make it right with God. We're trying to atone for our sins that we are trying to somehow repay him for what he has done. And that is not the case because the Bible tells us, if you love me, keep my commandments. The Bible tells me that we love him because he first loved us. The Bible tells us it is the love of Christ that constrains us, that pulls us, that draws us, that motivates us to serve Him. And when you realize the shape that you were in whenever Christ found you, the price that you were required to pay on your own, that He took upon Himself, He paid for you, and He changed your eternal destiny. He made you a child of God. He has has fit you for glory. He has went ahead to prepare a place for you. When you realize the love that He has for you, the compassion that He's had on you, it should make a difference in your life. I don't stand here today and preach his word. I don't serve him because I'm trying to earn anything. I don't serve him because I'm trying to prove anything. I serve him because he loves me and he's been good to me and he's had compassion on me. And how can I not serve him? How can I not tell people about how good he's been to me? How can I not tell about the salvation that he has offered, the price that he has paid whenever he has been so good to me? It is his love that compels us. And whenever he says, go and sin no more, she's not going and trying to walk the tightrope of religiosity, trying to maintain her salvation. She's not trying to go through and walk that tightrope, trying to make sure that she doesn't fall aside to sin in one way or the other, because God's going to reject her. She's going to sin no more because Christ has shown mercy and love upon her. And she wants to live in a way that is consistent with him. That is pleasing to him. That's going to cause her to learn of him and to be shaped and molded and grow in Him and it is a relationship that starts whenever we meet him that is the, the what compels us that is why we serve him or it should be and so if you're serving him out of fear if you are serving him out of obligation if you are here today because you think that somehow you are required to do it and if you don't god's going to be mad at you you've got it all wrong because what we find in scripture is that jesus loves us so much that he bled and died for us. Though we are condemned under the law, though we are trying to justify ourselves, we come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the word of God that we need him, that he died for us. We put our faith in him. We trust in him. He saves us. He secures us. He lives within us. He seals us until the day of the redemption of the virtuous possession. He does all of these things And we enjoy that fellowship. We enjoy that love of being His child, of being that object of His his love and of His forgiveness. And because of that, we can go and sin no more. Because of that, we can go and sin no more. doesn't mean I'm going to live perfect. doesn't mean I'm never going to mess up again. It doesn't mean that I'm going to have it all figured out. It means that I have been restored to a relationship with Him that I can walk with him in newness of life, and that I can choose to do the things that are just and right and holy and pleasing to him. And so where I want to leave us at today, we've all become very familiar, I'm sure if we'd be honest with ourselves, with the condemnation of never measuring up, with the condemnation of falling short. We've tried to ease our mind with comparing and trying to say, I'm not as bad as other people. I'm At least we'll be Okay. But if you'll be honest with yourself out of the word of God, I am not going to be good enough to enter into heaven, but I don't have to be. Jesus did it for me. If you haven't put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the price that he paid, you're never going to pay for your own sins. But he is offering by love and compassion to save you, to forgive you, to give you a place in heaven with him. Put your faith and trust in, in him today, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, shall be saved. Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I know you died for me. Will you please forgive my sins and save my That's all it takes out of a heart of faith. And if you have done that, if you have believed upon him, if you have trusted him as your savior, go and sin no more. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We are not under condemnation. We are accepted in the beloved because of the price he paid. I am accepted. Because of the price he paid, I am forgiven. And because of that, I want to live for him. Because of that, I want to do what's right. Because of that, I can, because I'm indwelt with his Holy Spirit. And so, believer, I want to challenge you today. Look at all that he has done for you. Look at how he loves you. Look at what he has made possible. And put your love and your affection on him. Learn of him walk with Him, grow in Him, and allow Him to do in your life what only He can do. And you can go and send them more. That being said, let's go ahead. We'll go to the Lord in prayer. We'll call it a day. Dear Lord, I come to you today. Thank you for your many blessings. Lord, I thank you so much for this passage that you've given us, for this, uh, this wonderful illustration of how we stand before you. I know oftentimes we are, uh, when we come to a passage like this, we try to put ourselves in your place as if we are the the good ones as if we're the heroes but that's not the case lord you're the only savior Uh, i hope lord that we're not the ones that are coming in condemnation that we're the not the ones that are looking down on the sinners and and trying to justify ourselves lord but we know that we fall squarely at your feet as sinners deserving of punishment but lord we thank you for your mercy we thank you for your compassion we thank you for that price that you paid for us if there's one here today that don't know you as their Savior, I pray that today would be the day that they would call upon you. They would express their faith and trust in you, their dependence in you as their Savior. And Lord, for those of us who have, help us, Lord, to never forget what you've done for us, the love that you have for us, the availability, Lord, of that presence of, uh, that you'd walk with us, that you would teach us, that you would instruct us, Lord, that we can go and be different than the way we were whenever you found us, Lord. We thank you, we love you, we pray that you would use and guide and direct us. In all these things we pray in Jesus' name, and amen.